once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. Many of us either have or have been that persistent kid who pesters their parents to get what they want. And while we should be persistent in our prayers, God isn't us or our parents. Church planning resident John Thompson brings us this message entitled Persistent Prayer in the Life of Faith, which covers Luke chapter 18, verses 1 to 8. For more information and to watch or hear other messages, please visit our website at perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today. Today, bringing God's word to us is John Thompson. Uh, John has become a very dear friend. Our church has been a church planting church from the beginning. Uh, God led Randy to come here and start not just a church, but a church that would plant churches. And now by God's grace, over 40 churches in North Georgia here that have been started either as daughters or granddaughter, great-granddaughter churches of perimeter. And we give him all the praise for that. And John is our next church planter that we'll be heading out very, very soon. Uh, John and I met through uh, some other guys who have been perimeter church planters or church planters in training. And when I met him, got to know his story and heard about his story and what God has done in him and through him and for him, I thought, I think God's hand is really on John's life in a really great way. And we are so pleased and thankful that God's led him here to be a church planter as part of the perimeter family. Before he comes to preach, give your attention to the screen. You're going to see a video where you'll learn a little more about John and his wonderful family and where God is leading them to plant a new church. When I think about the way that God has worked in my life, it's really beautiful, but it hasn't always felt that way. I didn't grow up in a Christian home but grew up in a home with lots of brokenness and dysfunction. And so I came to faith as a junior in high school through intentional relationships with friends and with coaches and through the ministry of FCA. And after high school and through some painful circumstances, God led me to the army where I served for almost 12 years. And it was in the army that I really learned how big God actually is and how beautiful his global church is. It was in that same season that God brought my wife and I together and blessed us with an incredible family. As we began to walk out our marriage and grow together, God called us into the ministry and gave us a vision for church planting. Years later, the Lord led us to Perimeter Church. And it was that perimeter where we received incredible training and encountered an incredible community of people. But more than that, God has used Perimeter to give us the DNA and the scaffolding we need to act on the vision that he's given us. When we thought about where we wanted to plant, we knew that part of our calling was to be where the nations are gathered. Through a lot of prayer and fasting, God led us to Lilburn. Lilburn is a beautiful city in Metro Atlanta that is incredibly diverse with people from over 30 nations. It's also a city that is growing and striving to meet the needs of its people. At the same time, we also started to see the brokenness of the community. And it's in the midst of that beauty and brokenness that God really knit our hearts to the city. Our vision for planting Kynos Community Church is to plant a church that reflects the depth of who Lilburn is. We long to be a visible expression of reconciled people, reconciled to ourselves, to God, and to one another. We want to join Jesus in the story that he's writing, to see the flourishing of all people. We want to be a hope in the city, a hope that sees gospel-driven change in Lilburn, the city of Atlanta, and around the world.
Let me ask, uh, ask John to come on up and uh, say a few more things as he's making his way up. Uh, somebody in our church here recently told me uh, that for a while they didn't know John's name. They'd seen him as worship pastor here. They just said, he's the guy with a great voice and a great beard. So <laughs> we love that. Uh, we're very, very thankful for John and Abby being here. Uh, the timeline of things is this. From now through August, he will be finalizing his training to plant and also they're in the process of raising startup funds from both within the church and outside the church to get this new church started and beginning to network some uh, for who God would uh, bring to them as part of a launch team. Lord willing, this summer they'll be moving to Lilburn. And then they'll continue to network and share the gospel and gather people into groups and expand that launch team. And then Lord willing, we'll start a Sunday morning weekly worship services, maybe as early as January of 2020, maybe as late as you know, August of 2020 when all those launch indicators come into play. So let me ask you to be praying for John and Abby. There is nothing that will put you on the edge of faith as much as starting a church and knowing that God's going to do something here for a church to exist. Uh, and it's only by his work that something uh, could come into place. So do pray. And if you happen to live in Lilburn, uh, consider maybe being part of this church and contact John and talk with him about that. And if you know people that live in that area, we'd love for you to refer them uh, to this church as it gets rolling. So. Before John brings God's word to us, let me pray for him. Love this guy so much. Yeah. Lord, we do thank you and praise you for John and Abby. Thank you for your work of amazing grace in their lives, throughout their lives. Thank you that for all you've done to prepare them to plant this church in Lilburn, Georgia. And Lord, we thank you for the partnering churches around there that are supportive of this. We thank you that they go to an area that's declining in uh, church attendance, though the population is increasing from people coming from all over the world. So I ask you that you would use them greatly in that. Lord, now open our hearts to hear God's word through this brother and may we respond wholeheartedly. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Bob. As Bob said, my name is John and uh, we are planting in Lilburn. Um, before I talk about that, I just wanna say that Perimeter has been an incredible gift to our family. This has been a sweet church for us to, to be in and to train in the last couple of years. And so each one of you uh, have been a real gift to us. So thank you so much for the love you've given our family. You know, when I talk about Kainos, the first question that comes out of people's mouth is always, what in the world does Kainos mean? Um, it's just a fancy way of saying new. It's the Greek term for new. And in the Greek, there's two words for new. There's one that means uh, new like the latest iPhone. It's the new iteration of something that already exists. And then there's this word Kainos. And kainos means something the world doesn't quite have a category for. It carries a, a, a connotation of innovation. It carries this connotation that God is doing something new. You'll recall in Ephesians chapter 2 that our brother Paul, he says that Christ and his body tore down the dividing wall of hostility between Greek and Gentile and Jew. You'll recall that uh, he said that Christ uh, tore down the dividing wall and created in himself one new man in the place of two, this kainos man. This man that the world doesn't quite have a category for because you see, it doesn't quite make sense that we can be reconciled from multi-classes and multi-races and multi-ethnicities and cultures and all the multis that you can imagine. Because we don't live that way. We tend to live across dividing lines. We tend to live in such a way that we separate ourselves. And yet Jesus comes along and he says, in my body, because the power of the gospel, you've been reconciled to God. And not just reconciled to God, you've been reconciled with yourself. 
You can imagine with me how many of us struggle just to be reconciled with who we are. We struggle to be reconciled with maybe how God has made us because we're so busy comparing and envying what other people have that we're not satisfied with who we are. We've been reconciled to the Lord. We've been reconciled to ourselves, but also we've been reconciled with each other. That there is no dividing wall in the church when it comes to the church of Jesus. And so our vision is to to plant a church that, that sits at the dividing line, a church that stands in the gap, that lives intentionally at the intersection of all of these things that typically would divide us. Because when we look at Revelation, what we see is we see a church from every tribe, tongue, and nation, every generation, every socioeconomic class, all coming together to worship the one true king. And it's only by the power of the gospel that this is possible. And you know, as we've interacted with people, a lot of times we get this idea, we've been told, you know, that is in Revelation for a reason, it's not really possible here. And when I think about that, I think, well, it's the same Holy Spirit. Same Jesus, same blood, same cross. Isn't it possible that God wants to do something new that is really something quite old? That in the fullness of time, Christ is is renewing all things. And not just in our homes and in our marriages and in our parenting relationships and at our jobs, but he's doing it in the church and in the world. So, We want to join Jesus in the story that he's writing. We don't have any fantasy about being the hope for Lilburn, but we do want to be a hope in the city of Lilburn that points people to the cross and sees people restored and flourish. So that's Kainos. Um, At Kainos, we talk about core cultures, and one of our cultures, one of the things we want to be true of us, we haven't arrived yet, but we're striving there, is this culture of prayer. We want to be known as a house of prayer. And to do that, one of the things that we've, we've come to grips with is that if we're going to be known as a house of prayer, then prayer has to become our first response rather than our last resort. Prayer has to become our lifeline and not our safety net. Prayer has to become not just a ministry of the church, but the ministry of the church. Because you see, if God is really sovereign, and he is, then only he is able to do what we're asking him to do. We wanna be a place where people come and they encounter the risen king, and that happens through prayer. Prayer has to become not just something that we do, it has to become who we are, which is how we landed at our text this morning. If you have a Bible, you can join us in Luke chapter 18. And in Luke chapter 18, Jesus confronts us a little bit with some of the things that that maybe stand in the way when it comes to prayer. Luke chapter 18, beginning in verse one, here's what he says, and it says that, and he told them a parable to the effect that they ought to always pray and not to lose heart. And he said, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him saying, give me justice against my adversary. Give me justice against my adversary. And for a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. 
And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? This is God's word. May he bless the reading of his word. Would you join me in prayer? Lord Jesus, we come with open hands this morning. And God, we come because you're all we've got. Lord, I've been reflecting on the way that you used to meet with Moses in Exodus 33. It says you would meet with Moses face to face like a man meets his friend. And Lord, we are not Moses, but we pray that you would meet us here in this place this morning. God, we pray that your son would be exalted. We pray, God, that you would give us eyes to see in your word. Lord, we pray that you would give us ears to hear your voice. Lord, help us to hear you above the noise of this life and all the things that are fighting for our attention. God, we pray you would give us fresh hearts to receive your word. We pray it all in Christ's name, amen. Four weeks ago, my family and I were uh, at a wedding in Orlando, and so we drove up early on Saturday morning, and we got there in the afternoon, and about six hours after our arrival, our two-year-old son, Micah, fell and broke his arm. He broke his humerus just above the elbow, and so we rushed him to the ER, and sure enough, it's broken, and they put him in a, a splint, and, and they tell us, you need to get him back to Atlanta, um, and you need to have him seen on Monday or Tuesday by an orthopedic doctor. He needs to get a cast put on, and it'd be better if they do that rather than us. So, it's Martin Luther King holiday, Monday morning, we're driving back from Orlando, we get to Atlanta, we can't find anyone who's open because it's a holiday, but we find a doctor at Emory Johns Creek who's open and we bring Micah in and he says, yeah, sure enough, uh, his arm's broken. He's gonna need a cast. But first, he needs surgery. You need to be here tomorrow morning because I'm gonna have to open him up and fix this thing. So 12 hours after arriving back in Atlanta, my wife and I find ourselves at Windy Hill Hospital with our baby boy. I think we actually have a picture of him. There he is, little Micah sitting there with his teddy bear. And I remember looking at Micah as he was sitting on that stretcher. And, and he was just kind of sitting there, quiet, kind of confused, not really moving, just kind of shifting his eyes around the room. And as I stood back by the door looking at him in the room, the nurses came to get him. And, and as he was going out of the room, we made eye contact. And then he turned the corner and he was gone. And I remember in that moment feeling so helpless because that's my baby boy, you see, and, and he's in pain and, and they're gonna take him in. And I know it's just a routine surgery, but he's my two-year-old son. What if things go wrong? That's the reason you have me sign the disclaimer, right? It's because for all of our proof, foolproof medicine and all the things that we have, there's a chance that something might not go right. And I remember feeling so helpless God, I remember praying, God, I'm depending on you now because this is my son and, and I have no other choice but to trust you with him. He's yours now, Lord. He's yours. And I remember God 
being so gentle to me and whispering in my heart, yes, he is. And that's okay because I'm good and he's gonna be okay. And as I've replayed that scenario day after day, week after week, I can't get this question out of my mind. And the question is this, why does it take a crisis in my life to make me dependent on God? You see, because all of us are just one phone call away from our lives coming unraveled. And why does it take a a crisis for me to reveal my lack of dependence on him? Isn't the gospel enough? Isn't the reality of who Jesus is enough to keep me tethered to him? You see, brothers and sisters, we have a problem. We have a problem, and our problem is is that we are living between two worlds. We are living between the world of self-reliance and the world of radical dependence. See, for all of our success and all of our ingenuity and all of our talents and all of our abilities, for all of our financial portfolios and our, our full pantries of food and for our nice cars and everything we have, we have a problem. And our problem is, is that we are being pulled towards self-reliance. Our problem is that just like our early parents, Adam and Eve, there is something in us that keeps pulling us away from depending on God and pulling us toward depending on ourselves. We have a problem. We have a problem because with all of our gifting and with all of our knowledge and with all of our success, at the end of the day, it really isn't enough. We live in an age right now where we have more information at our fingertips than at any other point in human history. And yet, it's not the information that's the problem, it's us. Because in our self-sufficiency, we are prone to making Jesus very, very small. And we are prone to making our causes and our ambitions and our bank accounts and our financial portfolios and our jobs and our ministries and dare I say our churches and our strategies very, very big. And it's in the midst of that tension that we're all in that we land on this topic of persistent prayer. It was Benjamin Bedamy in the 1700s who penned the beautiful hymn in which he said, prayer is the breath of God in man, returning whence it came. In other words, for the Christian, prayer should be like breathing. Prayer is oxygen for the soul and without it, our faith begins to die. Which is why E.M. Bounds, the great prayer warrior and writer some 200 years later said that every day spent in prayerlessness is a venture into functional atheism. What's the point? The point is that nothing demonstrates our need for God, such as prayer, and nothing reveals the condition of our hearts as prayer. As a mentor of mine likes to say, your prayer life, practically speaking, is the litmus test for what you really believe about God. Your prayer life, is the litmus test for what you really believe about God. And so we come to our text. So we come to our text, Luke chapter 18, verses one through eight. For the rest of our time, I want you to think about our our message, our parable, our story here in, in sort of three sections, the setting, the parable, and then the lesson. The setting, the parable, and then the lesson. 
So let's look at the setting, verse one. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought to always pray and not lose heart. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem, the cross in the not so distant future. And prior to our passage, the Lord has been teaching. Most recently, he's been talking to the Pharisees and to the disciples. And he's talking to them about the coming of the kingdom. And boiled down, Jesus' message is remarkably simple. The kingdom of God has come, and it's staring you in the face. You just don't see it. You don't recognize it. But a day is coming, Jesus tells them, when you will look for the Son of Man and you won't find him. But then, unexpectedly, the Son of Man will come. And in that moment, you will be unprepared, but you will not be, it will not be unmistaken. You will not miss him coming this time. Because rather than coming as a servant to die for his people, he is coming again in power and in glory. And with all of that in the rearview mirror, Luke tells us that Jesus told them a parable. A parable is a story, as you know, that is meant to teach us a spiritual truth. And some of them are more difficult to understand than others. For some parables in the scripture, we're not really sure why they're there, but not so with this one. Jesus, or Luke tells us up front, it says that uh, he told them the parable so they would always pray and not lose heart. The point of the parable is that as they wait for the Lord's return, as they toil between two worlds, as they keep their eyes toward heaven, they are to do that so that they won't be overwhelmed or discouraged. This is fascinating because in so many words, what Jesus is saying is, it's our connectedness to him that helps us endure. And when I see that, it makes me wonder how much of the disappointment that's happening in our lives right now, how much of the discouragement that we're all facing comes because we failed to keep our eyes on heaven. How much of our discouragement has come because there's something in us that's so focused on this life and what's important in the here and now that we've forgotten that God is making all things new. Your suffering is temporal, it won't last forever. You see, what Jesus is showing us ultimately is that wide and easy is the road to self-reliance. And many people find it. It's a gentle slope going downhill. It's the best type of terrain you can imagine. But narrow and steep is the way to total dependence. And few people are willing to climb it. That's our setting. Let's look at our parable. Verse two says, and he said, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. And for a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. In this short teaching, we learn so much about two people. First, let's consider the judge. Verse two tells us so much about him that he doesn't fear God and he doesn't respect man, meaning that he has no reverence for God and he has no love for man. He has the power to govern, but he doesn't have the morals nor the motive to do it well. He has no concern for the Lord that is over him, nor for the people that God has put in front of him to judge. 
In short, this man is the exact opposite of the great commandment that Jesus gives us to love God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength and to love our neighbor as ourselves. This is the, right, the unrighteous judge. But there's also a widow. It says that there was a widow in that same city who kept coming to him saying, give me justice against my adversary. There's a widow, she's been wronged in some way. We don't know what it is. Most scholars think that there's some sort of dispute over the, the um, estate that's been left to her. And so she keeps coming to him. But let's think about what we know about widows in Jesus's day. They had no voice. They were marginalized, they were often poor. And yet here she is in a courtroom, which is interesting because court was only for men. Women were not allowed. And because they lived in such a patriarchal society, the death of the husband often meant a cultural death for the woman as well. Especially if she didn't have any other male relatives to advocate for her. Though the Old Testament is full of provisions and protection for women, Often widows were left in such a vulnerable position that over time the word widow actually came to connotate poverty and marginalization. So imagine, if, if you can, the desperation of this woman sitting in this situation before a judge. She has no voice and no welcome or reason to be in the courtroom and she's standing in front of this man who's known for being unrighteous. We don't know how many times we, she came to him, but we know that she kept coming over and over and over again. She wouldn't take no for an answer. And verses four and five tell us that though she kept coming to him for a fair hearing, it says, um, for a while he refused, but after a while he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor I respect man. Though she keeps coming to him, he refuses, not once but twice, but continually. He's unrighteous, he's a judge who doesn't live justly, nor does he give justice or give people a fair hearing. He is not only antithetical to the great commandment, he also stands in direct violation of the great requirement of Micah 6, that we should do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with our God. And this is the man in the seat of power before this helpless woman. And yet, because of her persistent petitions, he's led to some epiphany. Because of her continual coming, it causes him to self-reflect and he says, though I neither fear God nor respect man. Wow. You'll remember if you're familiar with Luke 15 and the prodigal son, the wayward son, the rebellious son, it says that he had the same kind of epiphany. It says that when he came to himself, he was compelled to go back to the father, not so with the judge. He is fully aware of who he is and he is still rebellious. He says, but so, uh, so she'll keep bothering me or won't keep bothering me, I'll give her justice. I will do everything I can then to get her off my back. The Greek here literally is so that she won't black my eye. So this lady will not beat me down with her persistent petitions, I will grant her request. Now I don't know about you, but if you're a parent, that should sound pretty familiar. I can't tell you, even just this weekend, the amount of times I was in my home trying to do something, and normally, let me tell you how this plays out in my house. You ask me once, no. You ask me twice, no. You ask me three times, no for the rest of your life. <laughs> you're not having candy again till you're 40, as far as I'm concerned. 
But what really happens? My daughter's come, daddy, can we have ice cream? Daddy, no, 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 daddy's busy, no, daddy's, just to get them off my back. You can have ice cream, you can have candy, you can have anything you want, right? Don't you see what's happening? This is, this is what the judge is doing. He refuses her a fair verdict. He refuses to love his neighbor. He refuses to execute his duty. But so she'll leave him alone, he complies. He only grants her request because he's annoyed and because it benefits him. And that's our parable. We have the setting. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem and he's talking. And Luke tells us that then he tells us this parable. So what's the lesson? What's the lesson then? Turn your eyes to verse six. It says, and the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry out to him day and night? Will God delay long over them? Jesus says, I tell you, God will give justice to them speedily. You see, the lesson is simple. Reflect on what the judge just said. Don't miss his motivation. Don't miss how long it took him to answer her and why he did it. He knows he's unrighteous and he only gives justice because he's tired of her nagging. Jesus says, will God not give justice to his people when they cry out to him day and night? Will God make his people wait like this unrighteous man? No. Jesus says he will answer them with haste. And I know that some of you are probably sitting here and that seems to be a direct contradiction to where you are in your life. Because you see, you've been looking for work for months now and you can't find it. And it doesn't matter how much you cry out to God, you, he's not answering you. Some of you are wrestling with a diagnosis or you're grappling with some sort of issue in your life and you, you're sitting there and you're thinking, well, Lord, I keep praying to you, but you're not answering. And then here Jesus comes and he says, no, God won't delay, he'll answer. What do we do with that? Jesus says, if a wicked judge can give a fair hearing, how much more will God vindicate his people? This reminds us of the Sermon on the Mount, doesn't it? Jesus says, if you who are evil know how to give good gifts, how much more does your Father in heaven know how to give good gifts to those who love him? If you are evil know how to give good gifts. The lesson is clear. We have a good Father who loves to give good gifts to his children. But then Jesus leaves us with this question, doesn't he? He says, when the Son of Man comes then, will he find faith on earth? In other words, when the Son of Man comes, what will he find his people doing? The hero of our story is God the Father, make no mistake, but yet Jesus holds up this widow, this poor, voiceless woman as the beacon, as the image of who we're supposed to be until he returns. This woman who's at the end of her rope and has no one to advocate for her. She is the model of how we're to live while we wait for the return of our king. Because we have a good father, what Jesus is saying is that we can bring our petitions to him day after day after day after day after day and night after night after night after night because our God is listening and God is good. And because he is good, he will not leave you hanging like this unrighteous man, but he will answer you in his due time. Because we have a good father, Jesus says, we can persist in prayer. 
And I wonder if one of the reasons that we don't often persist in prayer is because if we look at God, we tend to look at him as if he's a parent who's looking for a reason to say no. We look at God as if he's looking at us and he's waiting for us to perform good enough for him to love us. And nothing could be further from the truth. Jesus reminds us that the unrighteous act because it benefits them, God acts because he loves us. So that's the setting, that's the parable, that's our lesson. What do we do with it? What does this teach us practically? Two points, two thoughts to orient your heart maybe. The first one is this, persistent prayer, it keeps us mindful of who we are. Persistent prayer keeps us mindful of who we are. You know, when I think about this parable, I want so badly to be the persistent widow. But if I'm really honest with you, I'm much more like the unrighteous judge than I realize. You see, because if I really feared God, and the C.S. Lewis sort of standing on the precipice of the Grand Canyon, this awe-inspiring fear of God, if that was really true of me, then, and if it was really true of me that I loved my neighbor, that I loved each of you, that, I would, that would transform my prayer life. But I'm really more unrighteous than I want to admit. And nothing is as good about showing us our true condition than prayer. It's in prayer that we lay exposed before a holy God. It's in prayer that we are reoriented and confronted with our weaknesses. It's in prayer that we are confronted by who we really are and our lack of faith. Prayer helps us see all the parts of our heart that haven't been quite transformed by the gospel. The more we pray, the more we declare our desperate need for him. Persistent prayer keeps us mindful of who we are. But secondly, persistent prayer keeps us grounded in who God is. Nothing shows us God's goodness more than prayer because in prayer we encounter God's grace. In prayer we can encounter his love. In prayer we encounter his kindness and his mercy and his encouragement. In prayer we encounter God's power. Prayer is a tuning fork for the soul. It aligns our hearts to God and it grounds us in him. We have a good father who loves to give good gifts to his children. And there is no greater gift than his son, because the scriptures teach that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Christ is our greatest gift. And there's no greater example of persistent prayer than looking at Jesus. You remember Matthew 26, Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, and what is he doing? He is praying. He is praying, and he is praying, and he's praying, Father, take this cup from me, but not my will yours. Father, take this cup from me, but not my will yours. Father, take this cup from me, but not my will yours. And he prays and he prays and prays to the point that he starts sweating blood. You see, we learn from Jesus in the garden and we see from Jesus on the cross radical dependence on the Father. Now we're not Jesus, but could you imagine if we prayed this way? Could you imagine what our neighborhoods and our marriages and our friendships and our relationships would look like if we prayed this way? Could you imagine our heart's transformation if we were tethered to the Father like the Son is tethered to the Father? If Jesus is who he says he is, if he is the true vine, if he is the living water, if he is the bread of life, if he's the good shepherd, if all of that is true, then that should fuel our prayer life. 
Jesus comes and he tells us we are to live more like the dependent widow than the self-reliant judge. And my fear for you and for me is that we would come here this morning and we would think that the answer to all of this is we need to go home and do better and try harder. Dependence is not the product of more guilt. Dependence on God is the product of a risen savior. See, it's not your willpower and your strength that will get you there, only Jesus. Only God has the power to draw us in and hold us close because we ourselves are rebellious and we can't do it. Persistent prayer, it keeps us mindful of our weakness, but it also grounds us in who God is. He is a good father and he loves to give good gifts to his children. Jesus is interceding for you right now. And so is the Holy Spirit because the word teaches us that we don't even really know how to pray. You see, the point of the parable is not to drown you in shame. It's to point you to the Savior. The point of the parable is not to burden you with guilt. It's to remind you of grace. It's by grace that you've been saved through faith. It's by grace that you've been reconciled to God. It's by grace that you can be reconciled with yourself. It's by grace that you can be reconciled to one another. It's by grace that you can boldly come into the throne room and lay your petitions before God, knowing and having confidence that he hears you and he will answer you in his time. It's by grace you've been saved. By grace, not by guilt. You know, the rabbis used to teach that to pray more than three times would weary God. It would weary him, it would tire him out. Now we don't do that, but we function that way, you see. I get up in the morning, I have my quiet time, I do my reading, I do some prayer, and then I don't pray again until I eat breakfast. And I say the same rote prayer that I've been saying for years, and then I don't pray again until I eat lunch, and then I don't pray again until I eat dinner, and then I might pray before I go to bed, but ultimately, reality is I probably won't have time with God again until the next morning. Is that really what Jesus has in mind for the Christian life? Why is it that we live as if we are falling under the rabbi's teaching, like we are afraid to wear God out? You'll remember that we have a God who never sleeps nor slumbers. He neither grows tired or weary. He is the first and the last. He is the Alpha and Omega. He is the one who is and was and is to come. He is Almighty God, and besides him, there is no Savior. He is the God who laid the, the foundation of the universe, and then he laid down his life and picked it back up again. This is the God we worship. This is the God we pray to. We pray to a God who is not tired of our requests, but instead is longing for us to sit with him in his presence and bring all of our heart's desires before him. He is that type of God. And it's only out of our union and communion with God that we can ever actually live for him and serve him. This is the God we serve, and this is the God we worship. I'll close with this. There's a story of this oratory contest from the 19th century. It's between a 25-year-old and an 80-year-old man, and the, the contest was to recite the 23rd Psalm. So the 25-year-old man gets up there and he starts to quote the scripture and it's mind-blowing. 
He says it with such power and such authority and such great oratory skill that it leaves the crowd speechless. They are stunned. They are sitting there just, I don't know what just happened. And so he takes his seat and the 80-year-old man comes back, goes up in front of the people and gathers his composure. And as he's doing that, he begins to quote the scripture. And as the psalm starts to drip from his mouth, the people begin falling to their knees weeping. And before you know it, everyone in the room is on their knees and they're crying, including the 25-year-old man. And after it was over, someone came to the young guy and said, man, what happened in there? And here's what he said. He said, I, I know the psalm, but he knows the shepherd. I know the psalm, but he knows the shepherd. Brothers and sisters, that is the call of God on all of us this morning. God just doesn't want us to know about him, he wants us to know him. He doesn't just want us to know about prayer or talk about prayer or theologize about prayer or believe in prayer, he actually wants us to pray. God's call on my life and on your life is radical dependence. Prayer must become like breathing to us. Could you imagine what would happen if we as a church and we as a people of God came together and began wearing God out with our petitions? If the church is the fullness of Christ in the world, and it is according to Ephesians 1, and it's the manifold wisdom of God being revealed to the nations, and it is according to Ephesians 3, then this is the calling we have to be a people who not only talk about prayer, but who actually pray. May God make us a people who not only know the Psalms, but a people who know the shepherd. And may God, by his grace, keep us tethered to him. May God, by his grace, keep us anchored into his word and on our knees in prayer. Let's pray. Lord, we're so grateful, God, that you hear us even now. Father, I thank you that you're the purpose of your word is to reveal your son. And God, we know that where Jesus is exalted, your spirit is moving. And so Holy Spirit, we pray right now that you would work in our hearts. God, there are some of us in here right now that are struggling to keep following you because this world is colliding with their expectations and they don't know what to do. God, for some of us, the answer to our prayer is wait. And God, I don't like to wait. Lord, for some of us, the answer to our prayer is not now. Lord, for some of us, we're not even sure we should pray. Lord, some of us are struggling to believe that you're actually here. Some of us are wrestling with whether you really are Emmanuel. Are you God with us? Some of us believe that you're God against us. Lord, wherever we are, I pray that you would meet us in this moment. Lord, help us hear you right now. We pray that your Holy Spirit would speak to us in such a powerful way because, God, without you, we are nothing. With you, we have everything. Lord, we are utterly dependent on you. Lord, be glorified in us, we pray. And we thank you for all of things in Jesus' name. Amen listening to the Perimeter Church Podcast. 
Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and find other messages from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day. Thank you.